no matter um, no matter who you are or what you've done, I've got good news for you. That good news is found in the gospel that Stephen just prayed, and that good news is going to be threaded throughout um, throughout this message. And it's my prayer is that um, is that that good news shines. And that good news, for some of us, it, um, it begins, or maybe it looks like this, it begins with um, new things. Or maybe we could just intercept where we live and where we are and with what we like um, with, with this, with this reality that all of us probably hear. We like new things. I know I like um, new things. It's one of the things that probably makes Christmas so exciting. It's the gift giving, but also the gift receiving and the getting of new things. And looking around the room, some of you are like, no, I don't really like new things. I like um, old things. I like antiques. I like things with some patina, some rust on it, things that are gently used, right? But even in that, what trumps that is uh, new old things, right? And so every probably almost person in here, we, we like new things. I love new things. In fact, I'm such a kid that whenever um, I make a purchase of something new, like if Luban and I go to the mall or we go to a place and I buy something new, whether it's a new gun or a new knife or a new pair of shoes or a new cooking something to cook with, like I am such a, a kid and I enjoy new things so much that I will say to Luann, like immediately, that's one of Mark's favorite words, we're in the gospel of Mark, immediately I'll say to Luann, Luann, you're gonna have to drive home, I gotta open this mug up and check it out on my way home. I mean, that's such a new kid that I am. And so I, I love new things and you probably love new things and not only new things, but we as a culture and as a people, we love new beginnings, do we not? It's one of the things that makes like New Year's Eve and New Year's Day so exciting is, uh, is new beginnings. It's the, the idea or the illusion. I mean, nothing's really changed. It's just another day on the calendar, but there's something about it that makes it feel so new and like with a new beginning comes new hopes. And so we like new things and we like new players, right? Players that come off the bench and do things. And some football teams, they like, uh, some fo- now you got to whoo, whoo, whoo when I preach the gospel too, right? Um, so... We like some football teams like new coaches as a sign of new beginnings. Like, oh, we got this mediocre football team and I know what will happen and we'll make it better. Let's fire our coach. He's probably the problem. We'll hire a new coach and we'll bring him in. New things and new blessings. And I say all of that to feed into this text I'm about to read. Like it's very possible to miss what's happening here as something new. But that's what Mark wants us to see. Like we have an opportunity before us to behold the beauty of God's word. That even as we think about a, a new book of the Bible that we began last week and we talked to you a little bit about, I said like the, 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 the gospel of Mark has probably, it has three authors to it. That John Mark has spent time with the apostle Peter and he's serving as kind of his interpreter, his writer. And so it has Peter, John Mark, but then the primary author of the Bible including the author of the gospel of Mark, is God. And we'll see that. We will clearly see that in this text. So the main point for today's message is this. It is that in Jesus, God is doing something new. The old has failed. Not that God has failed, but we have failed in the things that God has called us to do. The old has failed, but the new has come. And here's the beauty of the gospel, is anyone can get in on this. So if you have your Bibles, if you would, take them out and stand if you're able, just as a way to show honor to God and his word. And we are in Mark chapter one, 
verses. We're going to start 9 through 13. If you don't have a Bible or have one on your uh, device, you can use one of those black chair Bibles. You can find it in front of us, and it's page um, 937. We'll take you to the Gospel of Mark. And like I said, we're just getting cracking in this. So we'll look at these verses together. Um, Mark chapter 1, starting in verse number 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And so that's the event, and he's gonna tell us some more about the event. And when he came up, when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And then the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. This is God's word. You could be seated and let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that points us to your work that's being done in your son, Jesus Christ, our savior. May we see him as glorious. May we see him as beautiful. May we see him as the one who has taken our place that bears our punishment. All the sins of the world are placed upon his shoulders, Lord. And Lord, we, re, we think of that. We remember him in that. And we remember him in his death and in his resurrection. Even now, we remember him in his burial and his temptation. May you draw near to us by the power of this same spirit that we read about. Open our hearts and open our eyes. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, let me give you uh, just kind of two illustrations. It's gonna, I'm, I'm making the same point in this illustrations that will help us to understand this text, but my, my, my point is for two different generations. For my generation, I'll use this illustration. How many of you remember the Highlights magazine? Like maybe your school, like a couple of people raising their hand, right? So maybe your school had um, Highlights magazine that you could get and you could read and open them up. But if not your school, the doctor's office, that was where you could go and you could read the Highlights magazine. And inside the Highlights, like it was a little bit educational. It was a little bit entertainment merged together. And there was like all of these different puzzles. And there was one of the puzzles that, would do, that they would have inside of it that would be a, a picture and then inside of that picture, there would be hidden or embedded in that picture other objects. And so maybe it was a beach scene and the oceans and all that. But then over the side, there'd be a key and it'd be like, find the horseshoe, right? Find the, the jellyfish, find the um, umbrella. And so it wasn't just images there, but they were embedded pictures inside of that. All right, so that's one illustration that I want you to think about. Let me give another illustration for those of you younger than me, um, Easter eggs. Like sometimes within video games, Sometimes within movies, there are these, um, these hidden objects as well. There's things hidden in there, like, like, like the designer or the, the, the director or the writer will kind of sneak in a hidden message or a hidden object, and you'll spot it, and you'll go, oh, that's so clever, won't you? Like, you know, so Easter eggs. And so the same thing is happening here in this text of Scripture. That God the Father, as he's writing and revealing himself and revealing his work, he's, he's hidden some Easter eggs there's some objects embedded in this narrative that I want us to, to pull them out, and, but they're not like a horseshoe on the beach scene. They, they have purpose for us understanding what's happening theologically here, what's happening in the whole storyline of God. We, we see them coming here. Now, remember, like Mark is like, for whatever reason, John Mark is in a hurry to tell this story. Like maybe he's only got a little bit of paper and he's got to get through it. In fact, 
like other gospel writers will take up quite a bit more real estate with the baptism of Jesus as a huge event. And yet what, what Mark does is he only uses uh, 53 words in the Greek to describe the baptism of Jesus. It's like, again, one of his favorite words, we have it twice in here, is immediately, immediately. And he's like trying to get to the point of the story. And so he's, it's not that he's rushing through it, but he's saying a ton with those few words. He's very concise in what he's saying. And so if you would um, look at this text with me, and if you're using one of the scripture journals that we talk about, that you can get off of uh, Amazon, you can get one of these scripture journals, you can actually go in and like you used to do with highlights, you can kind of circle or highlight some of these embedded pictures. And so we'll look at uh, Mark chapter one, verse nine, and we'll look at the first um, couple of verses, nine through 11, and notice what it says. Here's the event. It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, last week, we really focused in on John the Baptist, or Mark really focused in on John the Baptist. So this is really the first time you're seeing Jesus. Again, something that's different for Mark. He doesn't start in the birth narrative, but rather he starts in the beginning of Jesus's ministry with the baptism narrative. And so the focus has now shifted from John the Baptist and it's now focused on, uh, on Jesus. And so he's no longer looking at John as the pointer. Now he's looking at the point and the point is Jesus in a specific moment very important moment in Jesus's life is Jesus's baptism. Now, remember, it's not like us who were, you know, maybe some of you were, you know, baptized and you saw this as like a, you know, a rite of, of passage or it was important in your spiritual life. Like again, when John the Baptist is doing baptism, nobody else is doing baptisms. I mean, what's happening here really is, is shocking. Like for us as Christians, it doesn't feel that shocking, but for a Jewish audience, seeing this happen, is very shocking. And so what is he doing? And look how it's being described in verse number 10. And he came up out of the water immediately, there's the word, and he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now let's circle a few of these Easter eggs that are hidden in here. You've got water, you got the heavens being torn open. You've got the spirit that's very descriptive what the spirit is doing. The spirit is descending and it's descending like a dove. You have this voice, the voice of the father that's speaking these words of, a, of blessing and approval over his son. And so then you, you start, as you, you pull these out now, now maybe for some of you, maybe this will jog your memory of another event. Or let me ask you, is there another event that maybe possibly comes to mind as you think about this? Let me help you along, Genesis chapter one. Like some of you, maybe you're, uh, you're reading in your Bible and you're doing your Bible reading plan and so maybe just a few days ago you started and you read Genesis chapter one and maybe you haven't kind of seen like the, the correlation here, but let me help you along. Genesis chapter one, starting in verse one, it starts off with in the beginning. Now remember how Mark started off his gospel, Mark chapter one, verse one, the beginning of the gospel. And so it's like Mark sees this as a new genesis that's happening here. Jesus has come on the scene and there's a, a new genesis that's, that's happening. And so we even read more in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens. And so you have this picture of the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And look again, you got the spirit. What's the spirit doing? And the spirit of God, he's, he's hovering over the face of the waters now, now, even in this language here that you've got this, this picture of the spirit hovering over the, over the water. So you've got water, you've got the spirit, you've got this, this hovering. I mean, literally in the Hebrew, the word hovering means fluttering. 
In fact, in the time to, to nerd out for just a minute, in the Targums, that's T-A-R-G-U-M-S, in the Targums, and what the Targums is, is the Targum is the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So the Old Testament would have been written in Hebrew. Later on, it's gonna be translated in the Greek, and that's called the Septuagint. But here, the people during this time, Jesus, Mark, others, they would have spoken probably two languages. The language of the, of the culture and of the time would have been Greek, but the, the language of the people where they're living would have been Aramaic. And the Targums is the, the, the Hebrew, Old Testament, translated into the Aramaic. And the Targum says this, and the earth was without form and empty and darkness was on the face of the deep and the spirit of God fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove, directly like a dove. So we see this correlation, Genesis 1, verses one and two, and now you got Mark with the baptism of Jesus, him recording it in such a way that sounds just like what's happening in Genesis 1. And then in, back in Genesis 1, you have the days of creation, including the creation of Adam and Eve. And then the account ends, the, the creation account ends with the, the voice of the Father speaking, a word of blessing and a, a word of approval over everything that he created. Remember that he says, and it says, and God saw all that he had made and behold, God declares it to be very good, a word of blessing, a word of approval. And then what happens next in Genesis is Genesis chapter three is a serpent shows up and beguiles, it tempts Eve. The serpent comes in and distorts the word of God and the promise of God and Eve falls prey into that and she falls into sin and disobedience. They believe the lie of Satan rather than the truth of God and his word. And in fact, this, this pattern emerges. Now I'm a visual learner and so I'll draw things out all the time. And so let me give you this kind of this pattern that happens over and over again. And this is a pattern we looked at a few years back when we went through the storyline of the Bible because it's prevalent throughout the storyline of the Bible. The, the pattern looks like this. It starts with creation. And then after creation is temptation. And then if, if, like happens so often in the Old Testament and in our lives, we'll talk about that, is we give in to the temptation and we fall into sin or failure. But in temptation, we have the choice rather to, to believe God and his promises and believe his word or, or have unbelief, faith or sin, to sin or to not to sin, to obey or to disobey, and what Adam and Eve do is they, they sin, they fail. And then what follows after that is God's punishment, his judgment that looks like exile. They're kicked out. That's what happens in Genesis chapter three. Remember that that's the very storyline. You have creation, the creation account in Genesis one and two. Genesis three, they're tempted. They're, you know, Satan comes in and they sin. And in, in their sin, what happens after that is they're, they're kicked out of the garden. In fact, it says this in Genesis chapter three, Verse 24, that God drives out the man from Eden. He drives him, literally drove out the man. Genesis 3, 24. Now go back into to Jesus, into Mark. That takes us back. Notice what it says, Mark says in um, chapter one, verse 12. The spirit immediately, look at that language, drove him out into the wilderness. Same thing that's happening here. Now look at verse 13, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now notice some other 
Easter eggs, if you will, some other images that are embedded in this text here. You've got a, a wilderness that is happening here. You've got uh, 40 days or the number 40 happening here. You've got, again, this temptation. He's being tempted by Satan. And so what's happening here isn't, isn't Genesis chapter one, although that's the pattern, but we see it again in the Bible in the next book of the Bible, which is Exodus, that we have this pattern reoccurring again in the book of Exodus. The, the creation of God's people is what's happening in the book of Exodus the children of God of Israel, you've got the, the presence of water. Remember, they're in slavery and God is gonna set them free. But between slavery and the promised land, what is there? There's a Red Sea and they have to pass through the waters. So again, you have this picture of waters and the waters are then opened up and the people of God go on the other side. So who are the people of God? Those who go through the waters, that pass through the waters, through the Red Sea. In fact, in Exodus, God calls Israel my son, and then after the Red Sea, which is where God is creating a new people, you have them going into the wilderness where they will be tempted. This is, again, the storyline of the book of Exodus. They will, have, they will be tempted in the, in the wilderness. And so we can go back to that image. They're created as they cross through the Red Sea. They're created as God's people. Then they go into the wilderness where they will be tempted. And they, too, they will sin. They will grumble and they will complain. They'll, they'll meet their obstacles rather than with faith, with doubt, and with accusation. They will be tested and tried. And they, like Adam, they will, they will fail. They will refuse to believe and trust God in his word. And they too will experience exile. They'll be sent back into the wilderness where they will roam around in the wilderness this generation for 40 years, this whole generation being killed off and then they'll go back and they'll cross over the Jordan, the same place where Jesus is being baptized. Do you see all the Easter eggs in this? Do you see what God is doing here? And now what we have in Mark chapter one is God's declaration that he is doing something new. That Jesus is the true and better Adam. That Jesus is the true and better Israel. And Jesus is retracing their steps, following the pattern, but where they are disobedient, Jesus will be obedient. It's the reality that God is doing something new, that this is in Christ, that he's creating a, a new creation. Not that Jesus is being created because he's always existed, but Jesus is taking on as the son of, of God and the son of man, Jesus is taking on a, a new role here. His new role is being the new Adam, the new Israel, the, the suffering servant and the substitutionary lamb on our behalf. Then in fact, as we think about God doing new things, uh, there's another verse that comes into mind, or at least it came into my mind as I was thinking about it. It's found in Isaiah chapter 43. Now it's one of those verses that, uh, that gets memed a lot. It, it, people use it on Facebook and on social medias a lot. They'll talk about God doing something new. They'll talk about God making new promises. And so sometimes you may even see it on a, on a coffee mug or something else like that. And, and a lot of times what we'll do is we'll apply it to a, to a new relationship or a new job or a new coach or some other new thing that God is doing, but it has nothing to do with those things. It has something to do with something very particular. It's found again in Isaiah chapter 43. It'll be up on the screen. It starts in verse number 16. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters. What does that sound like? Well, that's, again, that's, that's Exodus. 
It's what God has done for the children of Israel who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. That's what happened to Pharaoh. Look at verse number um, 19. Behold, I am doing a new thing, Isaiah declares. Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in in the deserts. And look at verse number 20. The wild beasts will honor me and the jackals and the ostriches. What an odd verse. But look at, look at Mark. Hopefully you got your fingers still in the book of Mark. Look at what it says in Mark. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days, not 40 years, 40 days. The number 40 is of importance there. And while he's there, what's it say? And, he's, and he was with the wild animals. He was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. This summer, Luann and I, we had an opportunity to, to go out west and do this trip. And I've, I've been saying, what were we doing out west? I was getting uh, sermon illustrations. That's what I've done. And so there's countless sermon illustrations. But one night, we, we camped a lot. We stayed in a hotel some. That we camped um, some as well. And we were camping inside of my little SUV. And we'd raise up the, the bed, uh, I mean, the tailgate on it. And that's where we would sleep. And we had this little tent that we would set up outside. And so we went to Monument Valley. It was like the absolute most gorgeous scenery around. I mean, it was just like so picturesque, but like the, the wind was just like ferocious that day. And so the, the tent, we couldn't, like the tent's blo- literally blowing away. So we fold it, roll it up. We stored away and we slept that night just out in the desert, in the wilderness, like with the tail go, go to, gate open. And I thought it was so cool. Like, I was just like, this is awesome. Like, we're looking out at the stars. It's like the Milky Way. The, the, the wind's just, sand is blowing, but I could care less. And I fall deep asleep. And I wake up in the middle of the night with Luann having like a miniature, like anxiety panic attack. Not a miniature one, a pretty big one. And she's like, this wind is driving me crazy. Oh my gosh, the wind, what are you gonna do? You know, and I'm like, I can't turn off the wind. And the other thing is like Luann off in a distance, she could hear like dogs barking. Now in my mind, it's like somebody's pet dog, somebody. But in her mind, it's like the hound of Baskerville, you know? She's been watching Sherlock Holmes too much. Like it's these wild animals that are out there that are gonna come with the tailgate open and they're gonna pounce inside of the, the, the SUV and like, you know, attack us or eat us or whatever. But listen, Jesus is out there in the wilderness with the wild animals, but he's not living in fear of the wild animals. But rather look at what Isaiah 40 tells us, three tells us. They are there to honor him. The wild beast, now I don't know how exactly, but I know this, they are are honoring him. And in fact, this prophecy in Isaiah 43, it works like many prophecies in that it has like multiple fulfillments that span eons of time. And Isaiah 43 works like that. It's like past fulfillments, present fulfillments in Isaiah's day, future fulfillments in Jesus' life, and even further fulfillments even in Jesus' life, even into heaven. And that's what we see even happening here. Multiple fulfillments. And they all, they highlight the character and the work of God. We'll go on in Isaiah 43, get past the wild beasts that are honoring him the jackals and the ostriches, but look at what he says. For I will give water in the deserts, river, I will give water in the wilderness, I'm sorry, rivers in the deserts to give drink to my chosen people. So he's pointing back at what happens in Exodus when they go up and there's no water. 
And he speaks to Moses and Moses strikes a rock and water flows from that. He's pointing back at that, but he's also saying that Jesus ultimately will be the rock that will be struck that will give water to his people. He goes on, he says, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. See, the new things that God is doing still have the same intended result, to form a people for his praise. To form a people, what is God doing? He's, he's making and he's forming a people that they may declare his praise. Now again, remember who's, who's writing, who's, who's behind Mark. It's not just John Mark, but it's also the apostle Peter. And so we really get some insight into, into Peter's theology as to what even Peter is thinking. And in 1 Peter chapter nine, I mean, in 1 Peter chapter two, verse nine, Peter says this, but you, speaking of the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. See, that all would have been language that it would have been to describe Israel. And now what Peter is saying is, no, no, Israel, because Israel has failed. There's now a new people, a new chosen race, a new royal priesthood, a new holy people, a, a holy nation, a new people for his own possession. And that is the church. And that is who we are. And notice again with the same intended purpose that you and I, that we may um, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Like even look at that language, it's, it's different. We've not, been, we've not been driven out, but we've been called out. We've not been driven out of the light We've been called out of, the, out of the darkness. Like that's the opposite. We've been called out of the darkness into the marvelous light. And that's what it means to be the church. To be called out, to be called out of the darkness and into his, his light, a people for God's praise. We'll go back to that image. That in Jesus's temptation, what Jesus will do here is Jesus is is coming and he's taking on and he's doing something new. New beginnings, newness there. And then what Jesus will be, that's, that's the baptism. And then what Jesus will do immediately, he will leave out of baptism and he'll go into the place of temptation. But there instead of Jesus falling into sin and falling into failure, Jesus will meet those temptations with perfect obedience. He will meet it with perfect obedience. And this is the truth that you and I can get in on. That when we place our faith and we place our trust in Jesus, that we are spiritually united to Christ and to his accomplishments. The blessing that the Father speaks over the Son here, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. You and I, by faith, we get to come in under that blessing, under that word of approval, not by our own works. See, look at this. Like every one of us, none of us, this, this is our lives, is it not? Like every one of us, we were born and we were given opportunity and we've been tempted throughout our lives. And many of us, we could say, or all of us, we could say we, we've sinned and we've fallen short. Like we can remember moments in our lives, real moments when we were tempted to, to tell the truth or to tell a lie. Like parents, we've been in that place with our kids when we've caught them and we stood there as a parent saying like, look, you've got an opportunity in front of you if you just tell the truth and come clean. 
But I always say we always discipline our children in light of our own sin, do we not? Because we remember moments when we were there, standing in that place, that we've been created and we've all been tempted and we've all sinned and we've fallen short and we've failed. We deserve God's exile and we deserve God's judgment. But Jesus is the one who stands in that place of temptation and instead of failing and instead of sinning, Jesus obeys. He obeys. In fact, I think I've got another picture, an image that will, that will um, show this, that Jesus, he moves into a place of trust and obedience. Now, Mark doesn't cover all of that. The other gospel accounts do. But as Satan comes and distorts God's word and diminishes God's character, Jesus meets every one of those temptations with the truth of God's word and he stands and he stands all throughout his life that Jesus is the only one who was sinless in every way. He never sinned in thought, word, deed, action in any way. Jesus is the one who has stood and he's trusted the Lord and he's obeyed the Lord. And you and I, we can get in on that. We can come and we can come under the, the Christ's perfection, even though we've sinned, even though we've fallen short. That's the beauty of the gospel right there. In fact, the beauty of the gospel is displayed even in this text of scripture in where Jesus starts out. Like notice here, Jesus doesn't start out with just creation, but Jesus backs up one. Jesus starts out in the place of exile. Jesus goes out into the wilderness where John is baptizing. That's where Jesus goes. I mean, there's another image, a large image that's kind of embedded into this text. Like certainly in this picture of the spirit driving Jesus out into the wilderness, you've got Genesis chapter three, verses 24, but there's another place. On the Day of Atonement, and so the Day of Atonement is a ceremony that's given to the people of Israel. It's a way for them to rid themselves of their real sins. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, he would take two goats, and one goat would be deemed the, the and they would be, a, wait, back up, there would be a goat that's, that's spotless, without blemish, both of these goats. And one goat would be the sacrificial goat, and the high priest would pray and lay his hands onto the head of that goat, symbolically transferring all the sins of the people to this goat, and then it would be slain, but there was another goat. It's called the scapegoat. Maybe you've heard that, probably you've heard that terminology before. Like, I'm not gonna be a scapegoat. Like, where does that come from? It comes from the Day of Atonement. And what would happen on the Day of Atonement with the scapegoat is they would go to all the people and they would say, hell, tell me about your sins this year. We're gonna write them down. And you had an opportunity to confess your sins to the high priest. Say, hey, tell me about your year. How'd your year go? Tell me all the things that you, well, I lied this year and I cheated and I, you know, lusted and I, and they would write them all of the sins of the people down on a scroll. And then they would roll that scroll up and then they would tie it to the goat, the scapegoat. And then they would listen, listen, they would drive, they would drive the goat away from their presence, away from Jerusalem, away from the tabernacle, out into the wilderness. And this is where Jesus is intercepting our story. He's intercepting the story of the people, not just in creation, he's gonna make a new creation, but he intercepts our story in, in our failure, in our sins, in our confession, in our honesty, in our brutal honesty of our sins. That's where Jesus picks up in the story. 
See, when Jesus is baptized even, and I think Matthew is the one that brings this up, this dialogue between John the Baptist and Jesus takes place as Jesus comes to John and says, John, I need you to baptize me. And John says, hey, wait a minute. I've already declared you to be the, 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 uh, the one who I'm not worthy. Baptize you. I'm not even worthy to wash your feet. We looked at that last week. Like, I can't baptize you, but what Jesus says to John the Baptist is, you have to do this so that all righteousness may be fulfilled. Now, whose righteousness is Jesus referring to? Certainly not his righteousness because Jesus' righteousness is already fulfilled. He's perfect. He's sinless. When he's speaking of righteousness, he's speaking of a moral record. And so whose moral record needs to be repaired? Whose moral record needs to be fulfilled? John the Baptist and every one of us in this room, that's whose. And what Jesus is doing in his baptism is he's identifying with us as sinners. Even though he never sinned, he's identifying with us. He's coming out into the wilderness and meeting us there in that place. He's becoming the true scapegoat. All of, his, all of our sins will be tied to Christ as Christ will be driven out. And this is the gospel. This is the good news that our disobedience and our sin and our failure is counted to Christ and Christ's perfect moral record, his perfect obedience, his perfect righteousness is counted to you and I. And that is the gospel. And how does it occur? It occurs by faith. The gospel is this, that we, you and I, who are in Christ, we are secure in our Father, we are secure in our position in the Father's heart. That's good news. That's good news. Look at what, again, look at what the father declares of the son. This is my son in whom I am well. Please listen to me. Those of you that are in Christ, that is what the father says of you. We get adopted into his family. We are united to Christ by faith. And what the father says about you and over you is this is my son. This is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. Now that's a hard one, isn't it? That's a hard one when we're really honest about our, our sins and our shortcomings and our failures for us really truly to believe that the Father could see us as we truly are, see every thought, every word, every action, and yet say to us, I'm well pleased. But it's true. Like change happens when we begin to think about this. Change happens even when we think about Jesus. That the Father doesn't speak this word over Jesus after temptation. He speaks this word of Jesus at creation. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. You don't have to earn that. You don't have to go after that. That's who you are. And you and I, we come underneath that blessing. We are secure in our position in the father's heart. And next, we are secure in our position in the son's obedience. That that's what this means. That's what it means when we say we are in Christ. When the apostle Paul like, it's not new language that we've just, like, you know, invented for the Point Community Church or invented in this time and in this space. That's what Paul says over and over and over again throughout his writings. Read Ephesians. You are in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means that we have received. That means that we are secure in our position in our Father's heart. We are secure in the position in the Son's obedience. Here's the deal. We'll go back to that image. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there's the language, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. That you and I, we have received the Spirit. We saw the Spirit over and over again in this text. Spirit's hovering over, you know, descending upon Christ, hovering. We see the Spirit's the, the active agent driving Jesus out. He's in the steering wheel. But last week we saw when, it's, when John spoke about Jesus, Remember one of the reasons why John said, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. He's like, what's the difference between the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus? One of the things we said was John's gonna baptize with water, but Jesus, from the text, he's gonna baptize with the Holy Spirit. That you and I, we who believe in Christ, we've been baptized, not just with water, but our water baptism, it pointed to and symbolized a, a new spiritual baptism, a new birth where you and I, where we receive the Holy Spirit. And listen though, listen, we're gonna face temptation. Even this week, probably, you and I, we are going to face temptation, are we not? We're gonna stand in a place, we're gonna stand in a moment, and we're gonna be tempted. Maybe you're gonna be tempted to lie to, to, to cover your tracks or to cover something else, or you're gonna be tempted to lie to make yourself look better in a moment. You're gonna be tempted this week. Many of you are gonna be tempted probably, possibly to lust, be tempted towards greed. You're gonna be tempted towards stinginess to hold on rather than to give away. Some of you are gonna be tempted this week to be lazy. We're gonna be tempted this week to, to put someone else down to make ourselves feel better about ourselves or, or to make ourselves look better in the eyes of somebody else. We're gonna be tempted this week not to love our neighbor, but to be selfish and stingy or to lie about them. We're gonna be tempted to say something that disparages our neighbor. Even though you and I, we have the Holy Spirit, we are still a sinful and broken people living in a sinful and broken world. But we who believe in Jesus, we come under the power of a sin-breaking Savior. That when you and I, when we stand in that place of temptation, and this is where it intersects with our very real lives, see, we stand in a place where we can either sin and be like Adam and be like Eve and we can fail, and, or you and I, we can not sin. We can believe in Jesus. We can trust in Jesus. We can let Jesus set a new pattern and Jesus set a new path and we don't have to sin. That's the reality that you need to know. You don't have to sin. Sin's curse has been broken over you. The slavery of sin has been broken in you and you don't have to fall into sin. In fact, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, and we'll end here. He gives this verse. He says, no temptation has overtaken you. That's what we're talking about, temptation. And look at what he says. No temptation has overtaken you except, I mean, overtaken you that is not common to man, Period. No temptation has come upon you that's not common to other humans. Now, this verse oftentimes is, is preached like, suck it up, buttercup. It's one of those verses that people use and say like, look, 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 the temptation that you're enduring is just like every other temptation. And there's a reality to that, but this verse isn't to be used as suck it up buttercup, but rather this verse is here to provide a real help to us. And so maybe you've heard it by a youth pastor or another preacher is just, you know, you can do this, you can beat sin, but listen, I wanna put, I, I want new lenses as we see this verse. 
And I want us to extract all the help that could be in this verse. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, period. God is faithful. Man, there's good news. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Now listen, some of you struggle in deep-rooted patterns of sinful behavior. Some of you, you struggle with addictions and you feel it, you, you get caught up and you've been around that, you've been around that creation, sin, you know, that really looks like forgiveness, sin, I mean, temptation, sin, ugh, feeling guilty and con- condemned. You've been in that pattern so many times that it's just ingrained in your mind. But look at what it says here. God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will provide an escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, I get it. Some of you feel completely powerless, but what I want you to see is the power in the spirit and the power in the gospel and the power that's even in this text of scripture that may help you to endure times of temptation and break those patterns of sinful behavior. Look, number one is we all have common temptations. Common temptations. And this is what this is. I, it's not a word of condemnation. It's a word of encouragement to you. It's not just suck it up, you, what you're going through is the same thing. Listen, what it's saying is, is look around the room. There's other people that are, that are enduring same kinds of temptations. See, what the enemy wants to do whenever you're tempted is he wants to isolate you and make you feel all alone and make you feel like you're some worst case scenario out there. And it's simply untrue. What this, what this first verse is doing is it's inviting us into community and into accountability. What it's saying is like, listen, maybe you have a, a, a particular temptation that you're trying to, to overcome. It's saying, look around the room. There's probably some other people in this room that are trying to overcome that same temptation. Maybe if you got honest, maybe if you reached out, maybe if you confess. See what sin wants you, Satan wants you to do is isolate, hide, stay in your shame, stay in your condemnation, stay in your guilt and keep going around that stupid circle time and time again. But what the gospel does is it frees us. It frees us to be honest about ourselves and be honest about our patterns and reach out and say, hey, probably, possibly there's other people here. And maybe just maybe in community, I can get some help and some accountability to overcome. One, reach out. Common temptations. Number two, look at this. God is faithful. God is faithful. Like sin Sin always oversells and underperforms. Sin always makes promises that it cannot keep. But God is faithful. He ultimately knows your needs. See, that's what happens in those sins when you feel tempted. You feel like I can get something here that maybe God won't give me. Maybe I can get this here and it's fast and it's easy, whatever that may be, and like, Run into God, well, first of all, God would never give me that. And even if he did, like I wouldn't, I, maybe I don't deserve it. But notice here, God is faithful. That sin circumvents God's provision. It undersells God's promises and, other, and says, find another way. But God is faithful. God is faithful. He knows what you need. He is a provider. He does not withhold good things from his children forever. Number three, look for a way of escape. 
in that moment of temptation, look for how, God, how are you providing a way for me to get out of this? What's the escape hatch in this moment? How can I, how can I get beyond this? And maybe it's smash your phone in that moment. I don't know. Maybe it's, it, maybe it's to, to go ham on your sin. Maybe that's what you need to do. I don't know, but you need to pray and ask God, God, show me what the way of escape is. Number four, escape is hard. See that. God will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There's still endurance that is gonna take place and endurance is hard. Some of you, you are, um, you love endurance sports. You're insane. Endurance sports aren't easy. Endurance sports aren't go out for a jog. Endurance sports are push your body to the very limits of failure and see if you can keep going. And that's the same idea here, that you may be able to endure it. Just because there's an escape path, an escape patch, and God is faithful, and this temptation has not over, it doesn't mean that it isn't going to be hard. He's admitting the hardness of it here. Escape is hard. One of, my, one of my favorite books is by a guy by the name of uh, Thomas Boston. It's, it's hard to read. I'll give you that. It's hard to read. A group of us uh, men got together on Thursday mornings and we felt really ambitious. We're like, we're gonna read this book. And one of our, one of our uh, brothers said, hey, look, I've tried to read this book like three times and I haven't made it through it yet. And this will be the time. And guess what? We didn't make it through it. It's that tough, but it's so good. It's called Precious Remedies um, to Satan's Devices. Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices is the name of the book. And I think it's the first chapter or second chapter. It speaks about the truth that what Satan does is he presents the bait and he hides the hook. And the fishermen in the room, you understand. Even though this is written in the 1600s, long before Bill Dance was a thing, but we understand that. Listen, that's what Satan does with sin. He presents the bait, but he hides the hook and you bite it. And once you get hooked, it's hard. It's hard to spit a hook out, but there's a way. There's a way of an escape. There's a way of endurance. And so listen to me, here's, here's the gospel. Tomorrow, when you're tempted, that's the reality of life. Tomorrow, when you are tempted, stand. Stand. Stand upon the promises of God. Stand under the position of God. And if you stand, and if you escape, and if you choose not to sin, here's what I want you to do. Magnify the grace of the Lord. Magnify God. God, thank you that you are faithful. Thank you that I, that I stood in that place of temptation. I stood even though it was hard. I was tempted to look at junk and I said, no, I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna honor you and I'm gonna honor my spouse and I'm not gonna do that. I stood in a place where I could have had ill thought of someone and I, I stood in a place and I refused to think about that. I stood in a place where I could have lied and I didn't lie and I, and, and I, and I stood and I endured and in those moments magnify the grace of the Lord. Lord, you are faithful. You provided a way of escape for me and I escaped sin and the consequences of sin and thank you. And if tomorrow when you are tempted and you fail, here's what I want you to do. Magnify the grace of the Lord. Say, thank you, Lord, that all my sins, including that sin that I just did, 
has been accredited and counted to my Savior, Jesus. And he's died in my place. He endured mistreatment. He was driven out. He endured the punishment and he endured the sacrifice. And he's given me. He's given me love and he's given me forgiveness in that place. He's given me love and he's given me in that place. Magnify the grace of the Lord no matter what. Magnify the grace. What Satan wants is he wants us to say, I've messed up and dad's gonna kill me. Maybe you felt like that with the Lord. I've messed up and now God is going to kill me. But listen, the gospel leads us to a better way. For us to say when we've messed up, I've messed up. I better call my dad. I've messed up, I better call my dad. And when you get a hold of that, it breaks that sinful pattern, that sinful cycle. It will empower you and it will change you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we magnify the grace of Jesus for sinners such as us, that what we will see over and over as we read the Gospel of Mark is we're gonna see your life being lived out, your, your heart, your character being put on display. That Jesus, you came as a revelation of God himself. We don't have to guess at what the, the heart of the Father is. We can see it being lived out in the Son. And what we see time and time again is you drawing near to sinners. You drawing near to those on the outside and you rebuking and condemning those who, who come with arrogance thinking they're on the inside. That even as we see here, Jesus, of who you are and what you've done, of where you meet us in our sins, it, it frees us and it calls us out of the darkness and it calls us into the light that we may magnify your grace. And we do that even today as we come to this table. We come here remembering that it's your Jesus, it's been your body that was broken. It's been your blood that has been spilled and given to free us from this pattern of sin that we may find forgiveness, Lord. And may you be praised in this. In your name we pray, amen.